Today's first reading is from Psalm 108. My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make music with all my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. For great is your love, higher than the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and let your glory be over all the earth. Save us and help us with your right hand, that those you love may be delivered. God has spoken from his sanctuary. In triumph I will parcel out Shechem and measure off the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah my scepter. Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom I toss my sandal. Over Philistia I shall in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? It is not you, O God, you who have rejected us and no longer go out with our armies. Give us aid against the enemy, for the help of man is worthless. With God we shall gain the victory and he will trample down our enemies. Our second reading is from Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the Psalms and the way they not only speak to us, but help us to speak in their words to you. And we ask that you would help us to understand and that you would move us to join in these prayers for Jesus' sake. Amen. Who will bring me to the fortified city, that is, bring me in as conqueror? If you are, as I guess most of us would describe ourselves as Christian people, we must be aware that in our society we are on the margins. You only have to listen to the Today program or any chat show, any news program, go to the news websites, uh, read a magazine, talk to people in the office, the workplace, the hospital, school, college... And we we immediately realize that we are surrounded by fortified cities which are, as it were, hostile to Christianity. Fortified cities of skepticism and cynicism about Christianity. Go into a, a, a Christian church at random in this country. Will you find a clear gospel of Jesus? Sadly, you won't always. And if you're here this morning and you're not as yet a Christian believer, it's lovely to have you with us. 
But you do need to take account of the fact that if you follow Jesus, you will be putting yourself on the margins of our society. And there are fortified cities, impregnable, invincible, hostile to Christian faith. So what are we going to do about that? Now, when a preacher begins by saying that uh, Christianity is doomed, uh, you know that they don't mean it. You know it's just a kind of ruse to get your attention. But there's something there, isn't there? I mean, you, you, you take an honest look at Christ, Christianity in our country, our culture, and it does look pretty bad. So what are you going to do about it? I'll tell you what we're going to do this morning. We're going to sing an old song. Psalm 108 is an old song, but it actually consists of two even older songs. So we're going to sing bits of two very old songs, and I'll explain what I mean in a minute. Let me just illustrate the idea of singing an old song before we do that. Uh, because I, I, I like classic old films, I love um, Casablanca. And I love that um, spine-tingling moment in Rick's Café in the middle of the Second World War, where the free French and all who are fleeing Nazi tyranny, the band strikes up the Marseillaise, and in the presence of the representatives of Nazi Germany, a number of officers sitting at a table, they sing the Marseillaise, and your, your spine tingles as they sing this song that's uh, a century and a half old about liberty and freedom, and you think to yourself, it's going to turn out all right, and it sort of does. Um, you, you don't want to look at the words of the Marseillaise too carefully. Um, some of them are a bit, a bit rough. So we'll leave the Marseillaise to one side, but it's just the idea that you, you sometimes you sing an old song because you're saying to yourself the, that what the old song is singing about uh, has relevance today. Now, Psalm 108, let, let, let's have a little think about Psalm 108. You'll see it's headed as Psalm of David. You'll also see that it comes in Book 5. Just look at the top of Psalm 107. You'll see it says there, Book 5. The, the Psalms are, are divided into five books of Psalms within the Psalms. And once you get to book five, actually probably a bit before then, but, but certainly once you get to book five, the, 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 this, these seem to have been collected and put together to be sung by the, the believing Jews when they came back from the exile in Babylon. That's the context in which they were sung. Some of them were much older songs, though, so, so a few of them are headed, things like a psalm of David, which was kind of half a millennium earlier, um, long, long, very old songs. And Psalm 108 is interesting because the first part of it, the first five verses, are actually the we're pretty much word for word, not quite, but nearly word for word, the second half of, um, of a much older psalm, Psalm 57. You can look it up later. And the second half of this psalm, from verse 6 to the end, is actually the second half of another very old psalm, Psalm 60. So Psalms 57 and 60 were really old songs, but by the time they sang this after the exile. And, and they're set in, in contexts where, where David was, was, was under pressure, different kinds of pressure, but he was under pressure. He was, he was in a minority, sometimes a very small minority. Things were difficult. It was hard to know what to do, and so he praised those old psalms. 57 and 60. And either David himself or somebody later has put together these two bits of those old songs and called it Psalm 108. So it's an old song. 
I mean, for us, it's a very old song, but it's an old, for us, it's an old song that consists of two even older songs. And, they, and then why did they do this? And I think we'll see that the reason they did this is that the stuff that David sings 500 or so years before is still worth singing today because of the confidence and the faith that he expresses in that. It's a model of how to trust God under pressure. And if that was true all those years ago, it is still true today. Now, it divides up. It's it's a bit of a strange um, psalm. When I realized I'd picked it to preach on, I sort of thought, I don't know why I did that. Because, you know, in the old, in the old versions, you read this psalm and it has in the middle, Moab is my wash pot. And you think, what is that? And so I realized I'd picked this psalm and I thought, oh no, what possessed me to, um, to, to, to choose? I didn't have to. Matt didn't give it to me. He didn't insist on me preaching this psalm. I picked it. So let's have a go and see how we, how we get on with it. It actually divides up not, 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 not too, not too hard. So, but we'll take verses 1 to 4 to start with. Each of the three bits of the psalm we're going to look at consist of a, a response and a reason. And the, the response is praise in verses 1, 2, 3, and the reason is, is love in verse 4. So David begins, my heart is steadfast. Now remember, this is to be sung by believers under pressure. My heart is steadfast when things are going badly, when things are difficult, when it's hard to be a believer. My heart is steadfast. And I'm going to sing, I'm going to make music with all my soul, all my being, wholeheartedly. Awake, harp, and lyre. In the exile in Babylon, they'd hung up their harps. Psalm 137, we, we, we hung them up. We said we couldn't sing. But uh, David says, I'm going to sing, and, and the returned exiles said they're going to sing, and we're going to sing. And uh, I, I'm going to, verse 2, I'm going to wake up the dawn. Normally it's the dawn that wakens me, well, or an alarm clock in our artificial world. But you know, normally that wakes me, but, but, but he says, I'm so thrilled with what I'm about to tell you about that I'm going to wake up the dawn. We have a number of noisy neighbors um, in our nearby flats. They usually make noise late at night. And I've always slightly perversely wanted to get up at five o'clock in the morning and go outside and just get some big speakers and do what they do late at night at five in the morning to sort of waken the dawn. I'm not sure it would be good for neighborly relations, but that's the kind of sense here that, 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 that David and the believers say, I'm going to, I'm really enthusiastic about this and I'm going to wake up at the dawn. I'll praise you, verse 3, O Lord, the covenant God, the God of the Bible. Among the nations, the rest of the world, among the peoples, I'm going to sing exuberantly. Why, verse 4, for great is your love. And that's the word that we met last week. Covenant love, faithful love, pledged love to all God's people, all who will trust him. Love fulfilled in Christ. Great is your love, higher than the heavens. Keeping of promises reaches to the skies. And under pressure, there's a little bit of a paradox that this song begins with exuberant praise. Some of the Psalms begin rather miserably and end with praise. This one begins with praise. And, 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 and the, the, the believers say, and we're invited to join in and say, actually the highest reality in the universe is the overflowing love of God the Father 
shown to us in God the Son, poured into our hearts by God the Holy Spirit, that there is no higher reality in the universe than the God who is faithful covenant love. And so we can praise him and our hearts can be steadfast, although we are under pressure as we shall see. So that's the first section. We'll come back to that maybe later. Second section, verses 5 to 9, focuses on promise. So verses 5 and 6, there's a, there's a prayer, be exalted, be lifted up over evil powers above the heavens, the victory of, 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 of your love, and let your glory, the visible shining of your love, be over all the earth, every evil power. Save us, help us with your right hand, your power in action, so that those you love... Uh, those you're committed to may be delivered or rescued. Why does he pray? He prays because, verse 7, God has spoken. And he's going to tell us the promise of God. I'll stand on every promise of your word. And what God has spoken in verses 7 to 9 is in the words of a very old song. And it does need a little bit of translation. Because most of us, if, um, if, if we're reading the Bible and we say, uh, Lord, I'm going to pray and I'm going to claim your promises and I'm so pleased that you've said in triumph I will parcel out Shechem and measure off the valley of Sukkoth. Because we, we sort of think, yeah, well, right, but I don't know what that's all about. So um, let me do a little bit of translation. But the language, um, God has spoken, verse 7, from his sanctuary. That is the temple from the place of his holiness. And it's a promise about holy war. And it's worth remembering that when the Bible speaks about holy war, it means something which is diametrically opposite to what is now usually denoted by that term. What is usually described as holy War in the world today is everything, anything but holy. It is exactly the opposite of holy. It is evil and wicked. When the Bible speaks of holy war, it's pointing to something which is the triumph of good over evil, the overcoming of evil with good and the triumph of love. That's what holy war means. God has spoken from his sanctuary. And the language here is the language of the Old Testament promised land. So the people after the exile lived in a tiny little area around Jerusalem, Judea. It was a sort of marginal province on the edge of, of the Persian Empire and then one or two other empires afterwards. It was a tiny little, little land. It was much less than the promised land of the Old Testament. And so here's the, 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 the promise. And, and verses 7 and the beginning of verse 8 make the point that in, in God's holy war, he's, he's promising to win the whole of the promised land. So verse 7, I'll parcel out, in other words, I'll, I'll allocate for myself, Shechem. And Shechem is a, a core town in the promised land west of the Jordan. In, in, nowadays it's in the West Bank, it's the, it's the town of Nablus in the West Bank, but it's west of the Jordan. And measure off, that is, conquer the valley of Sukkoth, which is in the east of the Jordan, Transjordan, modern day um, in, the, in, the, in the Jordan, um, the, the, the nation of Jordan. And both Shechem and Sukkoth were places that Jacob, 
the, the patriarch visited in Genesis 33. And they stand for the whole of the promised land, west and east of the Jordan, the whole thing. Gilead, verse 8, that's a, a tribal territory west of the Jordan. Manasseh, that's a tribal territory east of the Jordan. East and west, both sides, the whole land. Ephraim, the biggest tribal territory west of the Jordan, the most powerful tribe, my helmet. And what that language is saying is, is I'm going to conquer for myself the whole of the promised land. What you see at the moment is a tiny little bit of it. But I'm promising to, to, to give you the whole lot. We'll think what that means in, 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 in a minute. All of it. And specifically, verse 8, I'm going to do so through my king. Judah is my scepter. In his, his kind of deathbed blessing on the tribes, Jacob, Israel, the patriarch, said that, that Judah was going to be the tribe from whom a ruler would come who would hold the scepter and who would rule the world, Genesis 49. So so when God says, Judah is my scepter, he's saying, I'm going to rule the whole land through my king. And verse 9, you've got three enemies in the point that all the opposition is going to be defeated. So in verse 9, you've got three enemies in different bits. You've got Moab, um, whose territory was by the Dead Sea. That may be why they're called a wash basin, because they're by the Dead Sea, um, that that's a kind of wash basin. But it's a sort of language that God is saying, I'm a victorious warrior and I'm going to wash my feet in Moab. <laughs> that's the language. They're going to be defeated. Edom, um, descended from Jacob's brother Esau, I, I toss my sandal. That may be an idiom, meaning I, I'm claiming the territory. Or it may just be, I'm going to throw my shoe over them. It doesn't really matter what it is. The, 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 the thing is, they're going to be defeated. And Philistia, the, the ancient Philistines, um, are going to be defeated as well. So you've got Moab in the south, Edom in the east, and Philistia in the west, and they're all defeated. So what God is saying in old song language is, when I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they would have a land, I'm going to keep my promise in my holiness, the triumph of, of good over evil, the whole land governed by my king, and all the enemies defeated. That's what the old song language um, means. And when you ask, what does this mean today? The New Testament tells us. And the New Testament makes it crystal clear and there are hints in the Old Testament as well, that, that, that what, what God is saying is not you returned exiles have got a tiny little bit, bit of territory around Jerusalem and I'm going to make it slightly bigger. He's not saying you're going to have a, a slightly bigger patch of land in the Middle East. What he's saying is that this is a small-scale model of the fact that his king is going to rule the world. Do you get that in Romans chapter 4? The, the, the promise is described that Abraham's seed will rule the world, will govern, inherit the world. All authority in heaven and earth will be that king's. And the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus the Savior is a holy war. It is a holy war in which evil is conquered by good, in which love conquers, in which Bastions of evil are broken into and overcome, and by which in the end God's king from the tribe of Judah, 
the Messiah, the Anointed One, will hold the scepter and will govern the world. And that's why David prays so confidently, and it's why the returned exiles pray, and it's why Jesus himself will have prayed this psalm, I imagine. And he's confident that one day the world will be governed in justice and love by God's king, and so he prays. And the third section of the psalm builds on this and talks about power and victory. Verse 10, we discover the immediate crisis in David's life, right back, kind of 10 centuries before Christ. Verse 10, who will bring me, says David, that is, who will bring me as a a victorious warrior, a conquering general, to the fortified city? And when, when we ask which fortified city, we read on, and he says, who will lead me to Edom? Edom and the Edomites, descendants of Esau, were the one of the ancient enemies of the people of God. And the enmity went on and on long after David. So when the Babylonians trashed Jerusalem, the Edomites cheered. Psalm 137 tells us that, and the prophecy of Obadiah remembers that with sadness. The Edomites cheered when the people of God were wiped off the map. It was an ancient and an enduring hostility. And Edom lived to the east of Jerusalem, to the east of the Promised Land, in hill country. And you read the Old Testament and you discover that that Edom had kind of rock fortresses. I was reading through Jeremiah this week, Jeremiah 49, and talks about Edom as living in the clefts of the rocks, in the heights of the hills, building their nest, as it were, high like an eagle. Obadiah uses similar language of Edom, living in, in, in clefts of the rocks. And, and that Edom, obviously because they had these mountain fortresses, really, it's a bit like in Lord of the Rings, Helm's Deep, that kind of thing, an impregnable mountain fortress. They felt very secure. You read the Old Testament prophecies and you discover that the Edomites were very, felt very secure. You can still go. I've not been, but I'd love to go to, to what used to be their, their capital, it used to be Selah, and it's now, then later it was Petra, a rock city in Jordan, immortalized by, um, John William Bergen in his poem Petra with its famous line, a rose red city half as old as time. And it's this rock fortress. Uh, one tradition says that you, 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 to get in, you had to go through a gap the width of one soldier. Really hard to get into. Impregnable, invincible, fortified. You cannot get there. And in Old Testament language, this was a kind of um, visible, tangible picture of the impregnability and the invincibility of evil and hostility to the people of God, this rock fortress. Who's going to lead me there, says David? Who's going to get me there uh, to win the battle? Answer, verse 11, it's you, O God, but you've rejected us. You no longer go out with our armies. That's why we can't win whatever the battle was. And so David prays in verse 12, give us aid against the enemy. Human help is worthless. There's no way we can defeat this by human help, but with God we'll gain the victory and trample our enemies. 
So David prays 10 centuries or so before Christ, and he says, I'm faced with this impossible task. There is no way that I can conquer this hostile power in this impregnable rock fortress unless I have help from the covenant God. And after the exile, the believing Jews sang this old song, and it was a way of saying, it's not that they were going to go out and try and conquer the old Edomite rock fortress in the hills, but in metaphor they're saying, who's going to help us to conquer the invincible, impregnable fortresses of hostility to goodness and love and justice and godliness? We're surrounded by ungodliness, and it is unbeatable. Who's going to help us? And so they sang this song. Centuries later, Jesus of Nazareth sang this song. He praised his Father for his love with wonderful praise. At night, he praised him for his love and his, his love that's higher than the heavens. He claimed the promise that, 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 that God is going to cause his king to rule the world. That's what this is, a small-scale model of that big promise. And, and that you can imagine the Lord Jesus, as it were, saying in prayer to his Father, who will lead me? Who will lead me as a victorious warrior to the fortified city? And it's rather wonderful that this psalm tradition in Christian tradition has been used on Ascension Day. I think because of verse 5, be exalted, go up to the highest place of power. That's why we had the, um, not an Ascension story, but, but, but the, the Great Commission at the end of Matthew for the second, reading, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And in Old Testament picture language, imagine Jesus, the Messiah, the victorious warrior, going up to this rock fortress, this mountain fortress, this impregnable place of hostility to God. And with the help of his father, gaining access and defeating death and the one who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. And he won that victory at the cross. The cross is the place where holy war is seen in all its glory. The cross is the place where evil is overcome by good. Who will lead me to the fortified city? And friends, if we are followers of Jesus, we too are involved in holy war. We need to explain what we mean by that, because of course it would be horribly misunderstood in our culture. But the war we're engaged in is to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, by the Spirit of Jesus, with the word and gospel of Jesus. Faced with fortresses of evil, because you think of the most obvious and dark ones, things like the so-called Islamic State, but there are plenty of others. Plenty of others in our liberal media. Plenty of others in the godlessness, in our workplaces, and our neighborhoods. And fortresses of evil in our own hearts. As I've been thinking about this this week, I've just been conscious that I need Jesus the Messiah, as it were, to storm the fortress of evil in the depths of my own dark heart. And that that take a miracle. It'd take a supernatural power to do that. The help of human beings is worthless. There's no way by education 
There's no way by being nice to one another. There's no way by drinking cups of tea. There's no way by doing um, psychotherapy. There's no way by doing all sorts of things, which may be perfectly valid and valuable in themselves, but there's no way that fortresses of evil can be stormed by that. Fortresses of evil can be stormed only by Jesus, only by his cross. And only if I can put it like this, by his followers as we walk the way of the cross. It's only as you and I pray, who will lead us in Jesus to the fortified city of evil? These impregnable places of darkness. And we see them not only in our own hearts, but in our families. We see them in our workplaces. We see them in our society. We see them in our cities. Places of darkness that cannot be stormed by any human power, but which can be conquered and transformed by the gospel of Jesus. So it's a wonderful old song to sing. You think of those seeking freedom and singing the Marseillaise in Casablanca. And it's a wonderful scene. If you haven't seen it, you really ought to watch the film. But, but, but better still to get hold of this psalm, because the words of the psalm are better than the Marseillaise. And, um, and, and, and to, to see Jesus the Messiah storming the fortified city of evil, destroying death, opposing the darkness, bringing light into the darkness. And that as you and I sing this psalm, we see in it an old song which, which as it were, gives us a small-scale model of that wonderful victory. And it would be a wonderful thing if you and I, as we sing it and as we pray this song, can follow and walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Let's be quiet for a moment and I'll pray. God, our Father, we thank you that your conquering love is the highest reality in the universe. We thank you that that love is seen in the love and the sacrifice and the victory of Jesus, your King. We thank you that that love is poured into our hearts by your Holy Spirit given to us. And we pray that though we are often discouraged, these truths would give us the courage to bring the gospel of Jesus to places of darkness. And we pray that we might have the joy of seeing in some measure some of the victory of Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen.